welcome to the Proelium, which means the battle. The Joshua Lectures are an extension of New Antioch's classical education model. The intent of these lectures is to expose a larger audience to the understanding of the Lordship of Christ over all spheres of life. These lectures aim to address various topics within the disciplines of theology, philosophy, education, medicine, law, and ethics. Classical education engages these topics in a robust manner with an eye upon the cultural landscape and a mind transformed by the scriptures. For a reformation of today's vocations and institutions, Christians must be courageous and equipped to evoke real change for Christ. To be courageous without being equipped leads to defeat. To be equipped without possessing courage leads to disaster. New Antioch extends an invitation to you to come and experience these lectures in person. Each presenter approaches their topic with a substantial background of experience and or formal training in their particular discipline and endeavors to provide a careful and rigorous application of the Christian faith to life. Each evening's lectures will afford those in attendance the opportunity to ask questions of the guest lecturer through a moderated Q&A period following the presentation. If you would like more information, please email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. indulge me I'm trying to, I'm writing an experiment as I as I do a couple presentations so if you'll give me a couple minutes if you all if anyone has a piece of paper um, take that piece of paper you just need a little thing and I just want you I, I want to know where your identity lies like if you were meeting someone for the first time you are describing your identity write three words that describe your identity if once you have those three words, uh, just bring uh, just bring the pieces of paper up here because I'm gonna quickly go through them. As they're coming in, I'm also gonna need one volunteer just to be kind of like a scribe for me, just to write down some tallies. Anyone want to volunteer? Um, just to let you fill you guys in. I'm running a bit of an experiment just to start off. I asked everyone to write three words that describe their identity. So they all pass them in, and I'm going to tally them up, and I'm going to give you, I'm going to kind of put them into buckets, kind of, if you were. And so I'm going to say a bucket, and then you just basically just do a tally about how many times something is, falls in that bucket. So the first one is Christian. So maybe bucket one, uh, religion. So one tally there. Woman. So do sex, gender, one. And then florist, occupation, is another bucket for one. And now we have, uh, basically you can double up all those, Christian female career. Ah, Christian, um, youngest, so let's put another bucket for age. And... John Knox. So I'm not sure if that's supposed to be a role model or uh, let's just put that in the other other category right now. 
Ah, identity Christian, so one for religion, and then broken and healing. Um, let's make another bucket and put it, just say health. This is probably in the spiritual sense, but let's just put two for health. Um, identity, uh, Christ, so one woman and teacher. So another occupation, religion, gender. Here we go. Another one, Christian, outgoing. So maybe make a bucket for personality. And man, Christian, wife and mother. So put wife and mother under a family bucket. And then we have a man, Christian, and husband. And then the final one, um, only decided to come up with one Christian follower of Jesus. Okay, so that's how you guys all describe your identity. Could you read out the buckets and how many people put something in that bucket? Okay, interesting. So I'm all going to give you flying marks for putting down that your identity, first and foremost, is in Christ. So I was wondering, because if we didn't get that first bit off, then it's like, okay, we need to start backing up and go back to a whole bunch of other things before we can move on to anything else. So I'm glad that I think it was everyone or almost everyone put that as one of their first parts of their identity. Because that's where we really do need to find our identity if we're going to be engaging in anything in the world, including the realm of politics. So I'm going to talk about how our identity as Christians um, as basically dual citizens of uh, the Kingdom of Canada and also the Kingdom of Heaven, how they kind of fit together. And the reason I'm giving a presentation on this is because there's going to be a lot of people, um, not only in the world, like non-believers, but also Christians, who think that Christianity or religion and politics should be very much separate. That they are two very separate camps that Christians shouldn't try to impose their beliefs on, on anyone else. And that's, yeah, common not only in non-Christian circles, but plenty of Christian groups and denominations and persuasions, they'll think of the same thing as well. The two are very much separate. And one good example of this, I'm actually going to pull an example from our, uh, our prime minister. Um, he wrote a book, a memoir, before he, was, uh, before he was prime minister, before he was, uh, yeah, so in 2014. And, and I pulled this out of it. And he said, I believe very deeply in the liberal idea of freedom. We can all debate if all this is true today, but this is what he wrote 10 years ago. In the spring of 2014, I would announce a firm stance in favor of a woman's right to choose. It was a big change for some of my parliamentary colleagues. Previously, the Liberal Party considered this right to be subservient to the freedom of an individual MP to vote in Parliament according to his or her religious beliefs. As someone who is raised Roman Catholic and who attended a Jesuit school, I understand that it is difficult for people of deep faith to set aside their beliefs in order to serve Canadians who may not share those beliefs. But for me, this is what liberalism is all about. It's the idea that private belief, while it ought to be valued and respected, is fundamentally different from public duty. My idea of freedom is that we should protect the rights of people to believe what their conscience dictates but fight equally hard to protect people from having the beliefs of others imposed on them. That is the difference between the views expressed by a citizen and the votes counted in Parliament. 
When MPs vote in Parliament, they are not just expressing an opinion, they are expressing a will to have all other Canadians bound by their opinion under law. And that is where we need to draw a firm line. So I, when I was, I was reading through the book, that was really telling to me how the Prime Minister kind of thinks about how his religious values influences, or in this case, doesn't really influence how he thinks about politics and public policy. Um, but I'd suggest, and my organization, ARPA, suggests that that's not the best way of thinking about how our faith impacts politics. Um, there's a, a, more, a better, a more scriptural way to go about fusing these two ideas together and, and the two interacting. Um, so I'm going to go kind of in a kind of apologetic of why this is the case. And in order to kind of understand how the two fit together, um, I need to give a little bit to like a, a basic definition of what do we mean by faith or politics or the gospel or all these terms. Um, so I'm going to start by just talking about, well, what, what do we mean by gospel? What is the gospel? And I'm going to talk through a couple of verses in scripture that uh, in many cases sum up what the gospel is. And the first few of them are, just, are variations on the same question. Uh, the Apostle Peter, uh, right after he gave his sermon in Pentecost, he asked, or uh, he gave a sermon, and the people asked, well, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and believe and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. So that's a pretty typical definition of the gospel. It's the idea of personal salvation. Forgiveness of sins, you need to confess and follow Jesus. That uh, is the heart of the response that Peter gave. Um, the Philippian jailer also asked a similar question. What must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas, they responded, well, repent and be baptized. Or sorry, uh, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Again, we see the same idea of believing in Jesus Christ. But notice there that the gospel widens a little bit. It's not just individuals. It's you and your household. It's a little bit bigger. The rich young ruler, he also asked a version of this question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answered him, you know the commandments. One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have your treasure in heaven, and come follow me. You see the same theme here, following Jesus and repentance. But here again, we see a little bit beyond, beyond that. Have faith and follow Jesus isn't the only thing that Jesus commands here. He also says, distribute to the poor as well. Part of that gospel, part of the good news, also is to uh, help people and assist people in the here and now as well. Um, another, another thing, we're all familiar with the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father. And that's often where people stop. Um, but it goes on, Jesus goes on and says, teaching them all the things I have commanded you. And you see, I mean, if you go through Jesus' teachings through the gospel, he teaches and commands quite a bit. It's not only to come follow him, but he says to do all sorts of things, to live a self-sacrificial life. He himself said and fulfilled prophecy when he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, in a spiritual sense, he did all of these things as well. But he also spent a ton of his ministry healing the sick, casting out demons, feeding people, all of these things that helped people in their temporary or on their earthly life as well. So I would so if I were going to sum up the gospel, 
I would kind of say, actually, even before that, I would say just add one more. Um, and this is one of the ones that maybe leaves us scratching our heads the most. But uh, the Apostle James, he says that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So all of this, if I'm going to sum up the definition of, of, of the gospel, I would, put it, I would put it this way, that the gospel is the good news of the deliverance of sin, both eternally and temporally. That means both in this life and in the life to come. Um, and we could talk about, we can add on to that definition in all sorts of different ways, like who does this? Jesus Christ, how does he do this? What does it mean that we're delivered from sin? You can do all of these things and add to that. But uh, I think a best interpretation of scripture is that the gospel isn't just about being saved in, in a future life and has nothing to do with us now. No, it very much has to do with what we are doing here and now today. Um, and a good example of this about how to understand these two things together um, uh, comes from two pastors. Uh, Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert, they wrote a book called Making Sense of Social Justice, Shalom, and the Great Commission. And they talk about two different lenses, as you will, for the gospel. Um, the first lens is a narrow gospel lens, one that zooms in on what they call the heart of the gospel, that message of personal salvation. But then they also talk about another lens, and that's the, the wide-angle lens that looks at everything, how the gospel impacts every part of life, not just an individual's salvation. So they talk about how both of these need to come together. The gospel isn't just about personal salvation, that narrow angle view, but it's also not about everything and then losing sight of what is at the heart of that gospel. And Christians throughout the time and ages um, have kind of misunderstood what this gospel means and how to live it out. I could give some examples today of modern Christians who don't live this out as faithfully as they could, um, but to be safe, I'll use some like historical examples. Uh, so one historical example um, would be in the early church. Um, there was a movement called uh, asceticism, which looked at just the personal salvation part of the gospel. So a good example is this one guy named Simon Simeon Stylites. He found a, a Roman ruler, uh, sorry, a, a, Ro a Roman pillar in the middle of the desert. He climbed up on top of the pillar and didn't get down for 37 years. He stayed atop that pillar for 37 years, devoting himself to prayer, to confession, to penance, to all of these things, depending on other people to bring him food, to bring him water, to bring him whatever he needed. And he lived a very pious life on top of that pillar. And he actually sparked. Uh, many, many people to follow his example. You saw these throughout a lot of the early church area in northern Africa and Palestine, Palestine area. And even if you look further in history, um, if you think you look at some of the monasteries, some of them are built in like in, in inaccessible places where it's almost impossible to get to. They're trying to replicate that idea of retreat from the world. Let's just focus on our own personal salvation and not spend too much time focusing on uh, visiting the sick or caring for the poor, or counseling kings, or, or even early earning a livelihood for the uh, Simeon Stylites case. So that's one extreme, just, just to focus on personal salvation and leave the rest of the world to do whatever it's going to do. Um, but the other extreme is found, and what else uh, I'll talk about is this, the idea of the social gospel. 
So the social gospel was a, a movement within Christianity about 100, 150 years ago, the end of the 1900s, beginning of the 2000s, or sorry, end of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s. And the social gospelers, they are motivated very much by, by God's word and the, the commands of God to visit the sick, to bring liberty to the oppressed, to care for the poor, all these social actions. So they were very much involved in that. They did that in their personal lives. They started different organizations like the YMCA was one of the organizations that grew out of the movement caring for, uh, for young people and people in, in need. Um, but they also used and worked within the realm of politics to accomplish their goals. So uh, there's a good case to be made that the welfare state that Canada has today and all the social safety nets is the result of the work of the social gospelers trying to help people in their day-to-day -day life. And originally, the social gospel was kind of the idea, well, let's bring the word of God in one hand and a loaf of bread in the other. Let's provide both to a person. But over time, it meant basically they said they left the Bible at home and they just came with two loaves of bread and no gospel or uh, no message of salvation there. And so eventually they lost that heart of the gospel at the expense of the, the social implications of the gospel, if you want to call it that. So that's an example of emphasizing one part of the gospel without and leaving the heart of it at home. So that's what I mean uh, by when we're talking about gospel and the gospel's impact. Um, we, can, we can talk about this definition more in, after if you guys want, but I'm going to use it uh, the, for this presentation to talk about the good news of the deliverance of sin, both eternally, in the next, in the new heavens and the new earth, and temporally, right here and right now. So that's the gospel. What about politics? How do we define politics? Well, I would say fundamentally, politics isn't about political parties. It isn't about government. It isn't even about power. You see all sorts of political theorists talking about all those three all the time. Politics literally means the affairs of the city. The word was coined um, by Aristotle, or at least popularized by Aristotle when he was talking about ancient Greece and the idea of the polis, or the city-state. And in the ancient Greek and later Roman cultures, politics wasn't just about government, it was a very wide-ranging affair. So, and a way to picture this is through the Roman Forum. So the Roman Forum, it was a big rectangular square in the middle of the city. Uh, I had the chance to go to Rome and actually see the ruins of this forum. They're still here today. And it's a quite, an, quite an impressive sight. And when you're there, you notice that there are remnants of religious buildings on this side and government buildings here and economic marketplaces here. And, and, and there was a place where the uh, philosophers could talk. That's because it was such a wide-ranging activity, this affairs of the city. Everything happened in this public square, in this Roman forum. And even, even beyond all those things, sometimes there would be, that's where the, the military parades would always end. That's where they would commemorate great men and make statues and all these different things. It was the center of basically everything in the city. So it was the center of the affairs of the city, not just of government, but of everything. The Apostle Paul, um, he went to Rome. He talked to the emperor, presumably, when he appealed to Caesar. Um, I do, we don't have any recollection or any, any account of him talking in the Roman Forum. But we do have one um, of him in Acts, in Acts 17, of him talking to the Greek equivalent, the Areopagus. Um, 
the, uh, it, one verse in Acts says that he, he reasoned in the synagogues, in the marketplace, every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and some of the Stoic philosophers also conversed in him, with him. So you just imagine, he's standing in the Aragopagus, participating in all these affairs of the city. Now, he didn't take sides. He didn't say, yes, I, I'm on the party of the Stoics. I'm part of that political party or philosophical, philosophical movement. And he wasn't on the side of the Epicureans either. Um, so he participated in the affairs of the city without being consumed by it. And one also good way to think about politics, um, I talked about the Roman Forum, but just to think about what is public life. And it's a good contrast to private life, because most of our life is relatively private. We have our private homes, we have our private businesses, we have our private associations. Um, to an extent, our churches are somewhat private as well sometimes. And, and sometimes that's not necessarily bad. Like, I'm taking a shower at home. I don't want someone just walking into my house. Um, or if you're a business owner, you don't want anyone just walking in off the street interrupting your business meeting. Um, so there's good reasons for privacy. Um, but the public square, that's where everyone can interact. And that's something that impacts everyone as well. So if you go think back to the Roman Forum, um, in that middle of that public square, like one of the best public squares, um, in this area is right in front of the, uh, the art gallery in Vancouver. But in the public square, whether a physical place or metaphorical, that's when the prices are determined. Prices are determined by public interactions with each other. That's how government policy is arrived at through public discussion and dialogue. The, the morals of civilization, they are arrived at through religious conversations and philosophical conversations that often happen in the public square. Now, the public square might look a little different today than it did back then. Um, like, I, there's a different photo here. Um, but also, the public square, to a large extent, is, is online now. That's an opportunity where we all can interact with members of the public or through newspapers or there's these other mediums as well. But fundamentally, politics, the affairs of the city, includes everyone to a different degree than, for instance, a family or a church or a business includes everybody or some people. Uh, one good way to think about this, I'm going to talk, I'll mention this. Um, there's a, a man, Patrick Schreiner. He's a professor at a Baptist theological seminary um, in the States. And he describes it this way when it talks about how we engage in the public square. Um, he said that we have, we kind of have three options. Option one, number one, is to be private. That's kind of what I just talked about, to not engage in the public square, but just stay where we can be private, whether that's own our own, home, own, own homes or our businesses or even our, our churches to some degree. He said, that's not the best option. Um, the other extreme option, too, is to be partisan, which means that you can be very much invested in the public square and in politics, but only do it through the, through the lens of the Conservative Party or the Liberal Party or the New Democratic Party, and that's being too... Uh, too focused on an identity that's not in Christ, that's not in, in being a Christian, but your identity is focused on something else. Uh, he says the best, he suggests the best way to be involved in the public square, he calls it just political in the way that I've been talking about it, just to be involved in the affairs of the city. And he says that's the most faithful option that we can pursue. Not to be just private, not to be just partisan, although there's times for both of those as well. You need a, a part of your private life, and there's times you can't vote in elections unless you vote for a political party. 
but our default option should be involved in politics. Hello. If you put those two definitions together, that the gospel is the deliverance of sin, not just in eternity, but also in the here and now, and that politics is the overarching affairs of the city, then um, let's combine those two a little bit. Uh, at the organization that I work for at ARPA, um, we talk a lot about one, um, one philosopher, political philosopher, um, his name was Abraham Kuyper. He was uh, actually, he was more just a political philosopher. He was a pastor, he was a newspaper editor, he was the prime minister of the Netherlands for a little while, so he basically did all of these different activities, rolled them into one, had experience and everything. And he came up with an idea um, that we often refer to, and that idea is the idea of sphere sovereignty. The idea that there are different areas of life, and there are different authorities in life, and each of them are in charge of their own area. So for example, example uh, pastors and elders are kind of in charge of the spiritual life of the church. That's uh, mothers and fathers, husbands or wives are the, are the authorities in the family. That the police and civil government is over kind of society, and there's all sorts of other different, different institutions in society. Um, so that each of them has their own different sphere of authority. But under and over all of these different authorities is still God, is still Christ. Um, I have a picture of it a little later on um, that I'm going to get to, but, but, in, um, but I want to show this one first. Uh, actually, I'll, yeah, I'll leave it for a second. Um, and this is kind of the same way when it comes to how the gospel impacts our life, too. The gospel impacts all these different areas of life, whether, it go, whether it's talking about art or education or business or family, all these different things. And politics is one of those areas, one of those domains that the gospel impacts. But at the heart of all of that is that message of personal salvation, that message that, forget which of the gospels that comes through, but what gain is it if I gain the whole world but lose my own soul? I can make the greatest impact in all sorts of different ways in, in the realm of science, for example. But if I don't have faith and believe uh, in Christ and am destined to hell, then eventually, ultimately, none of that is really going to matter. But as Christians, our faith impacts all of these different areas. And this is one thing that many people in public don't understand. They think that you can just compartmentalize the gospel and what it means to be a Christian into just one neat little area called the church or the private sphere or, or something like that. Just keep it over there. But sometimes I use the analogy, I argue by analogy in this case. So think of yourself uh, in this way. Imagine you are a pretty core, hardcore environmentalist. You think that climate change is the issue facing society. The issue is going to lead to uh, basically the end of the world, uh, or at the very least, make it very, very difficult for people to, to continue living as, as we do now. And so you decide, okay, this is a huge problem, and I think it's like, like nothing else really matters. This is what really matters. I'm going to focus my entire life to trying to address this issue. So you go out, you buy an electric car, you install solar panels on your roof, you um, do all sorts of different environmental policies yourself. You shop at only a, a low-carbon grocery store or something like that. You do all these things in your personal life to try to solve the problem because your entire life philosophy is dedicated towards stopping climate change. 
But then imagine that's all you did. Imagine you never mentioned it to someone else. You never asked the government to do anything on this topic. You just did it in your personal life. Well, if anyone else was looking at you, um, would they say, yeah, you are definitely going to save the entire world. You are going to do this all by yourself. Well, no. We would say that in order to be like a, have those beliefs really to impact the rest of the world and to be consistent, you can't just be an environmentalist in your personal life and then just in your public life and your political life lead a totally different life. No. If you're going to be consistent with your values, that needs to impact all areas of life, just not what you do at home, for example. In the same way, that's what we need to do as Christians, is that our faith needs to permeate all these different areas of life. Just like, uh, just like Jesus says that we can't hide our lights under a bushel, or if we are salt, we lose our flavoring, that we're useless and for nothing, except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So we also need to be involved in things like politics. And just one, uh, one final point here before I give some tips about exactly maybe how we do this. Um, this is important and uh, we need to be involved in politics, not only because the gospel impacts all of life, but also to a large extent, we confess that um, Jesus is king. Like that's a political statement. He is the, the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And the Bible uses all sorts of different analogies for, for God. So, so we talk about him as his father. We talk about him as master, kind of maybe in a, in a business sense. Um, but we also talk about him, and he reveals himself to us as a king in a political sense. And if you, if you go through the Gospels, this is basically the reason why the Romans crucified Jesus, is because he claimed to be a king, or at least the Jews claimed that he claimed that he was a king. And that's a very political, political statement. And that's where our ultimate allegiance lies. So, so that's how politics and how that's how the Gospels are inter, intertwined together, just kind of from an apologetics standpoint, that our faith impacts all areas of life. It can't be compartmentalized to just one little area that the Gospel impacts all these areas of life, including politics. Um, but then from that idea, from that standpoint, okay, what do we do? How do we apply that? How do we do political action? And this is what uh, the organization that I work for, ARPA, the Association for Reformed Political Action, this is what we really try to encourage Christians to get involved in all the time, is to be involved in political action. So I'm going to give you five different suggestions uh, about how we can all be politically active. And these are the ones that we always encourage everyone to basically be doing all the time. And I'm, I went on the alliter alliteration theme, so I'm going to give you five Ps. Five Ps of Christian political engagement. And the first one, simply to pray, first and foremost. We read uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about how he's doing evangelism. He says how he planted the seed of the gospel that Apollos watered, but that it was God who gives the growth. And that's the mindset we need to come with as well whenever we're gaining, engaging in politics. That we can be involved in all these sorts of different actions, and other people can help us out as well. But ultimately, God is the one who's going to bless those actions. Or 
say, no, that, that's not an action that's, uh, that's in alignment with my will at this time. So we need to pray for God to bless those actions. There's a, there's a story that I once heard that Martin Luther, he said he was so busy all the time, like he was up from dawn to dusk. He has so much to do. He said, I have so much to do that I ha just have to spend the first three hours of my day in prayer. He was saying, the more that needs to be done, the more prayer needs to be done. And from a political perspective, there's a whole lot of things that I see need to be done. So a whole lot of prayer needs to happen. So that's the first P, uh, pray. Second one is provide. To provide for your neighbor in your day-to-day -day life. So fulfill all those commands of Christ to, to love your neighbor in all those different areas. Provide food and money and shelter for those who are poor. Provide companionship for the lonely. Provide care for the sick, guidance to the lost, visitation to those in prison. I say this not just because Christ commanded it, although that's the, the ultimate reason, but also because so many people in our society don't look to Christ for all of these things. They don't look even to the church for these things anymore because the church has largely decided we're not going to be involved in all, the, all these different things. Instead, they look to government for all of these things, for, for health care, for poverty allevi alleviation, employment, insurance, all these different things. They look to the government instead. And if Christians, and if we actually lived out the, all the calls of Christ faithfully, then a huge number of the problems in society um, would largely um, be solved by themselves because it would be private citizens going and helping and taking the action that's needed instead of leaving it for, for the government to take care of. So that's the third P, provide. Third P, proclaim. <laughs> every, uh, back in the Middle Ages, every town had one of these, a town crier, whose job it was to go through the entire town telling them the news of the day, particularly for people who couldn't read or didn't have access to a newspaper or something like that. Of course, um, this probably isn't going to be us anymore. Um, we've developed a little bit differently, but we still need to proclaim. Um, if I wasn't going on the alliteration say, I would say the word advocate. So advocate or proclaim for justice for the oppressed, the, the downtrodden, the poor. Advocate, proclaim justice. And we do this in all sorts of ways, whether just like uh, talking to friends and family as basic as that, whether it's reaching out to the public, in the public square, using things like uh, social media or newspapers, writing a letter to the editor, uh, whether it's writing a book, starting a blog. In any way, we need to proclaim to anyone who's willing to listen what Christ calls us to do and how we should be engaging in politics. The third, or the, sorry, the fourth P is petition. Petition those in authority. So. Um, the world's been in existence for about 6,000 years, and throughout the course of human history, there have been um, over, over 10 billion, over uh, higher than that, 12, 14 billion people who have ever lived. And the vast majority of time, and the vast majority of people, people have not lived in a democracy. They have not lived in a place where they participated in making decisions of their country. They lived in dictatorships, they lived in uh, monarchies, they lived in all sorts of different forms of government, one that didn't give them a voice. But we have the blessing to live in a democracy today. 
where we can go to our member of parliament, our provincial MLA, our local town council, uh, whether mayor or city councilor, or our local school trustee, or, or even people within political parties. All these different areas are ways that we can petition the government to change. And that's basically how our system is set up. The, all these people, all these politicians are our representatives that are supposed to represent their constituents, so all of us, in the decision-making halls of power, whether that be Parliament or at the legislature in British Columbia. And um, I've actually had the, the privilege of working for a member of Parliament for a couple of years, or a couple of years ago um, for a little while. And sometimes people think, well, this is actually like talking or writing uh, letters to my MP or signing petitions. Does that actually do anything? And I can say from working there, if enough people do it, then it absolutely does make a difference. There's over 100,000 people who live in each MP's writing. Imagine if they got 100,000 pieces of mail. Like, you'd be paying attention almost instantly. Now, most MPs will never get 100,000 pieces of mail from every single constituent. But even seeing a dozen of, a, of the same, a similar letter, similar concerns coming from constituents, it's enough to pique their interest. If that starts to rise into the dozens or hundreds, um, then they definitely get to notice. And if you get higher than that, then yeah, more, the more influence that you have um, and the more that you contact them, the more people that contact them, the more they do realize that something is an issue. So start petitioning. And then finally, participate. And this is, good. This is the classic call to, to go out and vote. But it isn't just to go out vote in general elections. And this is one of the things that people don't understand when they get into politics um, and political action. They think that, okay, the only thing I can do in a democracy is go out and vote every four years and that's it. But I would challenge each and every one of you, not only to vote, but to go become a member of a political party. I don't care which one it is, it doesn't matter to me, but go and become a member of that party and work within that party to bring Christian values. And once you're in that party, there are all sorts of opportunities that you can do to try and to be active there. So if you're a member of a political party, you can, for example, attend conventions that they have every about two years. And at some of these conventions, they determine what's going to be the official policy of the party. Well, enough people get involved, in, enough Christians get involved in that. They can make a lot of change there. They get to choose who's going to be the local nominee for that party. So if you're running here in Langley, um, there might be two or three different people who want to be the liberal nominee. Well, whoever's a member for the liberal party in Langley gets to vote who's going to, who's going to represent them. Who, which of those three people is going to run in the general election? And also, when a leader steps down, it's the general party members that have the opportunity to elect the new leader. So when Justin Trudeau resigns, or Jagmeet Singh resigns as leader, or Pierre Polyev resigns, there's going to be a leadership election. And if you're a member of that party, you can help vote for someone who will be the replacement for that party. So there's all sorts of more opportunities for engagement, for influence in politics if you're a member of a political party. Just to say, ARPA, well, I said I don't, I don't care which party you join. ARPA is nonpartisan, so we really don't care. I'm just saying it. But through all of our work, we realize how important being involved in that level really is. Okay, and those are the five Ps for, for Christian political engagement. I think I'm gonna leave it there. 
I have some stories about how um, people, some Canadians throughout history have um, done this well of combining politics and the gospel together, but uh, in the interest of time, I'll just leave it there. I think we're gonna take some questions now. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Joshua Lecture Series on Politics and the Christian Worldview. You can find more lectures by going to newantiochinstitute.com and click on the tab Joshua Lectures or by finding us on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform by searching for Proleum. If you'd like to know more about the New Antioch Institute, you can email us admin at newantiochinstitute.com. And we're also on Facebook and you can find us there by searching for New Antioch Institute or through the link provided in the show notes. Thanks again. Take care.